We are in a new series called A.D., A New Beginning. It is a natural sequel to the one we just finished, Game Changer. We studied all the way through the life of Christ, and what came immediately after that was the birth of the church. And so it seems to make a great connection with what we just finished up as we explore who we are as the body of Christ. Roger did a great job last week of introducing us to the birth of the church. And Acts chapter 2, which was the text from last week, ends with these beautiful, upbeat words. It it is a word picture of of the joyful early church. And this is how we read the end of chapter 2. It says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, and listen to this, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, not weekly, not annually, but daily those who were being saved. What an incredible picture we have of the early church in those early days. Unfortunately, this is the last truly peaceful picture we have of the ancient church in the book of Acts. By the time we turn the page to chapter 3, the climate of acceptance begins to change. The attitudes are beginning to devolve. In the opening verses of of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was the afternoon time of prayer, and they're going there to, to pray. And so they get to the temple, and there they enter in what is called the main entrance of the temple. It was called the beautiful gate. It was the largest of the gates into the temple. It was made of an expensive bronze. The doors faced the east, and so you can imagine on sunny days, as the sun was coming up in the morning, it reflected like a a brilliant flash of light off of these bronze doors of the temple, and, and thus the name the beautiful gate. There were 15 steps that led up to that gate, and at the base of these 15 steps were scores of maimed, crippled, blind, deaf people who had come to beg. Because the Old Testament commanded God's people to take care of the poor and the sick, what better place to engage those who are on their way to pray or on their way to worship than to be at the very base of these steps so that people would share with them their gifts of benevolence. It was the best, most visible place to beg. Now, one of those who occupied a few square feet at the base of those steps in the shadow of those huge bronze doors was a man who had been crippled from birth never had walked in his life, had always been dependent on somebody else to get him someplace and to get him home, even here. Somebody had to bring him to the temple. Somebody had to take him home at the end of the day. I cannot imagine what it would be like to spend your entire life depending on the generosity of others for everything that you needed. I suspect after a period of time, he'd he'd obviously been there for years, I suspect people stopped making eye contact with him. You know, you walk in, you know where he's sitting, so you just kind of look the other way. And um, we we do that. That's human nature. Uh, We are not good with making eye contact in uncomfortable situations. Because there's something about when you make eye contact with somebody, it changes the dynamics. It's it's hard to look away. It's hard to say no if you're making eye contact. So in an uncomfortable situation, we just don't look. I remember when we were in New Delhi, uh, India, the, uh, we, whether you were in a van or a car or whatever, when you're stopped on the street, 
people who were begging would come up and they would pound on the windows and oftentimes they would be carrying these sickly, sometimes deformed infants in their arms that were just absolutely pitiful. I mean, it just tore at our hearts. You wanted to reach into your pockets and empty them out and give them everything you had and our Indian host reminded us they won't get any of that money. They are pawns in a great scam and scheme, and, and it will not help them at all. Don't give them the money. Give it to somebody who has a need. And in even knowing that, I could still not look them in the eyes because there's something about making eye contact that changes the dynamic of what's going on. Peter and John walk into the temple that day. They hear the lame man speaking, and they walk over to him. And what's really incredible about this story is that the lame man doesn't look at them until Peter and John say, look at us, make eye contact with us. And then Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And Peter reaches down, grabs the man by the hand, pulls him to his feet. He walked. He jumped. He laughed. And Peter and John watched with a sense of joy, knowing that the healing of his feet would not begin to compare with the healing of his soul once he really came to know this Jesus in whose name this miracle had been accomplished. And then, then for the first time in his life, he walks up those 15 steps into the temple, into the court of Israel for a time of worship and prayer. And he just couldn't contain himself. His lips were filled with praise and heartfelt thanks to the God of Israel. And the crowds, the crowds couldn't believe what they had just witnessed. And so they gather around the three of them and the cripple who has now become a sprinter latches on to Peter and John. And Luke uses a very specific word to suggest that when he latched on to Peter and John, it was a death grip. And the reason I think perhaps was that maybe he thought if they get out of his sight, he'll return to being a cripple. I don't know what it was. He just knew that these men, in the, with the power of God at work in him, had changed his very life. <clears throat> so a handful of people gather around, and a handful of people seem to attract other peoples. And so the more men that gathered to check out the commotion, by the way, women were not allowed into the court of Israel, so it's only men here. The group becomes a gathering. The gathering becomes a mass. The mass becomes a crowd of curiosity seekers. And what does any good preacher do with a crowd? He preaches. And Peter seizes the opportunity and preaches an incredible sermon. It is, it is a life-changing sermon. It is a polarizing sermon. There are those in the crowd who embrace the message as good news. There are others in the crowd who are anxious and worried. And then the leaders of the temple come and command that they do not preach any longer in the name of Jesus Christ and to ensure that their words would take root and grow. They had Peter and John thrown in prison overnight. Suddenly, the church has gone from being in favor with everybody to, uh-oh, Peter and John are in jail for Jesus Christ. Now, out of this story, I think we learn something about courage, courage that is necessary, infectious courage that the church still in the 21st century desperately needs. And the first thing I want you to see is that it takes courage to do what is right, to do the right thing. 
Because you see, I'm convinced it's always easier to be indifferent. Someone else will take the lead. Someone else will rise to the challenge. Someone else will lend a helping hand. I don't have to do that. There's plenty of other people to do that. I'm just going to take it easy. I'm going to follow the easy course. I'm going to be apathetic. After all, the road to indifference offers no obstacles. It's pretty smooth sailing, and there are a lot of people on it. It's a crowded place, this road to indifference. But I want you to know, life, even though it's smooth on apathy way, has no purpose, and it brings no rewards. When you live your life in a spirit of indifference, you will live your life in a spirit of mediocrity. Nothing bad may happen. Nothing good's going to happen either. And you're going to muddle through life miserable. But there is a kind of courage that is necessary to do the right thing because sometimes doing the right thing, doing what is right, may go against the stream. It may buck the crowd. You may have to step off of the path and take a more rugged approach. You say, well, that's kind of scary. Well, yes, that's why it requires courage. Eddie Rickenbacker said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. There's no fear. You don't need courage. That's the very heartbeat of what courage is. And Peter and John courageously did the right thing. They changed that man's life by the power of God through the name of Jesus Christ. And they knew when they did it, it would be the start of something big. Here's what we see in this story that I want you to remember. And, and, and here's one thing. It says, an interruption may be God's calling card to you. You realize that? Uh, Peter and John were on their way to pray. Remember, that's why they were going to the temple. And prayer is a very important thing. It's, it's a very necessary. It may be the greatest of the spiritual disciplines we're called to do. It's not something you want to sacrifice. I'm afraid if I had been Peter and John going to the temple to pray and I saw the, the, the crippled man, I would have said, I'm sorry, can't talk to you now. I've got this important thing to do. I'm going to pray. Peter and John never get back to the prayer. Never happens. They get interrupted by this man, but this was what they were supposed to be doing. God brought them this interruption that simply launched the church even farther into what God wanted it to be. I've learned that God seldom works through messages written in the clouds or fireworks in the sky. I've seen God occasionally supernaturally work to spare a life, to restore a marriage, or to provide a new job. But mostly, folks, mostly God takes great delight in working providentially through the ordinary courses of life. If you sit back and wait for the skies to open up and hear the voice of God before you do anything, you'll never do anything. It's just as simple as that. I, I will tell you this morning, I have never heard the voice of God. There have been times when I have sensed his leading, and there have been times when I've suffered through his silence. There have been times when I've been confident in his will for my life, and there have been other times when I've agonized over what God wanted from me. I'm in my 40th year of preaching, and what I've learned in four decades is that God delights to work through the interruptions of your daily life. Now, we generally don't like interruptions. <laughs> You're sitting down to supper, you got your first bite of food in your mouth, and the doorbell rings. Or you get to the climax, the most important part of the television show, and the phone rings. A baby's birth interrupts our freedom as a couple. 
A lost job interrupts our career path choices. An illness interrupts our retirement. And everybody knows that an alarm clock interrupts the best sleep of the whole night. I've read, I've read about a manager of an apartment building in Memphis, Tennessee, who was so disturbed by one of his tenants' alarm clocks, it was just an incredibly loud alarm clock that he couldn't take it after night, after night, after night, after night of that alarm clock going off. And so he pulled out a 22 revolver and shot it twice before it would stop ringing. <laughs> now he's serving time in jail, which is another interruption to the overall life that we live. But I want you to see the other perspective of interruptions. What for most of us is seen as annoying may be a life-changing opportunity. You see, oftentimes we read this story in Acts 3 and 4 and we think the main character of the story is the cripple. <laughs> no, the main character is the crowd. It was the crowd that came. It was the crowd that heard the sermon. It was the crowd that was changed. Yes, the cripple walked again. But what was the purpose behind the miracle? The miracle was to give the opportunity for the, for the apostles to preach what God was up to and how God could change their lives. The, the miracle was an object lesson to the real purpose which was to help people find life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So stop waiting for God to move heaven and earth so you can do something in the kingdom. You just start working, and when you get an interruption, that may be heaven moving to get you to do what God really wants you to do. I've seen interruptions change everything. Many of you will remember the story of Wan Jun Yoon. On July the 4th, 1999, our usually peaceful community of Bloomington was interrupted with a tragic shooting. Wan, a Korean college student, was randomly shot and killed by a wacko white supremacist who was just passing through town. It was one of the most random, hideous acts ever. But out of that tragedy, an international student ministry began to grow here, which has changed every one of us. From international Bible studies to the annual furniture drive, God has opened amazing doors. Some of our Asian students who have accepted Christ here and have been baptized right over here have live streamed their baptisms home so their family and friends can watch halfway around the world while it's going on. And many of our international students who worship with us while they are here and who are now out of our country and back in their own native lands worship with us at this very hour. They are watching on our live stream, socc.tv, and, and they write and say, it is wonderful to reconnect with this family back here in Bloomington. I just, I, I am a better person. I am a richer Christian because of the international influence within this congregation. But I got to tell you something. I'm not sure, had it not been for Carthel Everett, who came as a result of that tragedy on campus to see me and said that he had a passion to do something for our international students, that our international ministry would be what it is today. Out of a tragedy, God has brought a blessing. And every time somebody from someplace else in this world sets foot in this building, we are blessed and are better people because of it. And it all started with an interruption.
Pay attention to the interruptions. It may be God's calling card to get you to courageously do the right thing. Here's something else I see in the story, and that is there is a genuine need that may be God's opportunity. When there's a genuine need, it may be God's opportunity at our doorstep. Once again, Peter and John demonstrate courageous insight. Well, what impresses me about this story is that the, is the, the lame man didn't get what he asked for. He asked for some money to get him through till the next day. He got what he needed, which was life in Christ. That's what makes God so awesome. We ask for something temporary, but God gives that which is eternal and lasting. And I'm not talking about the physical healing. Uh, again, I want you to know this really wasn't about the physical healing. Hey, folks, don't you realize that, that this wasn't the only hurting person at the base of those 15 steps? This was the gathering spot for all kinds of people who needed healing. Only one person was healed that day. Why didn't Peter and John heal everybody at the base of the steps? Because it wasn't about the physical. It was about drawing the crowd for the preaching of the gospel because everybody, everybody there needed to know Jesus Christ needed to know about his resurrection, needed forgiveness and life in his name. You see, God's purpose still hasn't changed in 2,000 years. He still wants the world to find his son, and that's why we serve and share and give and respond. It's not just about doing something nice that lasts for minutes or hours or days or even weeks. We aren't compelled to give what others want. We are compelled to help meet their greatest need finding forgiveness and everlasting life in the name of Jesus. That's why, even though we are now debt-free, Unleashed isn't over. You know, about three weeks ago, we celebrated being debt-free. We paid off. We don't have any more debts. That's wonderful. But do you remember why we started Unleashed to begin with? It wasn't to just be debt-free so we could say we're debt-free. It was to get away from paying all this money to to interest so that we could take that same money and invest it in the kingdom of God. Now, on that day, we had these cards that said, my unleashed dream is, and you filled those out and turned them in. We got scores of those in with great ideas. As a matter of fact, that list of ideas that you all submitted and, and that we've all shared together will outlast every one of us in this room. We'll all die before we get through that list of all those good ideas. And that's great because that says that there's all kinds of wonderful things that can happen in the kingdom of God. Here's what I want you to know. If we keep giving like we should be giving, if we keep our pledges toward unleashed like we've promised that we will do, in the coming years, we're going to take those extra funds and we're going to do what I hope is significant changes and making significant difference. And I want you to look at these three buckets up here for just a minute. This is the way I think it's going to work and it'll play out. It'll go into three different buckets. This bucket here represents the church here. There will be things that we have to do here that we haven't been able to do for several years because we haven't had the extra money. Uh, the, part of this building is, is approaching 25 years old, and there are some things that just have to be fixed and replaced and that kind of thing because they're wearing out, just like you would do at home. Got to take care of our spiritual home here, this building that God has entrusted to us. So some of it will go here for programming. I, I got to tell you, I want our youth and our children to have the very best that they can to prepare them for the future. So some of it will go here. This bucket represents our community. 
Some of it will go into this bucket so we can make an impact and a difference in this community. I always, I always want us to measure what we're doing with this idea in mind. If, if the church disappeared tomorrow, would anybody in Bloomington care? Would, would it be noticed? Would what we are doing in the life of this community be such that people would notice immediately that the church was gone? I want it to be that way. I want us to make significant differences for the cause of Jesus Christ. This bucket is global. This is where money will go that we can work with the partners that we already have who are in ministry to do some significant things around the world. Just like the video you saw earlier today and how that video highlighted the fact that there is now this place in India that this congregation and members of this congregation made possible that's changing lives. We want to do those kinds of significant things. Now, here's the deal. Every year will be different. Depending on what people give and how much extra we have, it will determine how much can go in the buckets. And not all the buckets will receive the same amount every year because there will be bigger needs some years, maybe here, or maybe in the community, or maybe around the world, and that may determine how much goes in the buckets. But those are the buckets, and that's what we want to do to make sure that we continue to courageously do the right thing. And then I see this too, because things begin to change here real quickly in the story, and that is it takes courage it takes courage to stand up for the right. You see, while Peter was still preaching, he gets interrupted in his sermon. He gets interrupted by the temple leadership who come to him and say, don't you ever preach again in the name of Jesus Christ. And they throw him in prison as a result of that. <clears throat> but here, here's how it all goes down. Acts chapter 4, verse 8 and following. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, being Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I'm telling you, when you spend time with Jesus, the courage will come. And just a few verses down we read, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, You judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's a fire that just has to come out of us. We cannot stay silent. These are particularly fearful times, I believe. Terrorist bombings, escalating unrest in the Middle East and other parts of the world, new plots being uncovered that have targeted our homeland, the anticipation of future biological or nuclear warfare, the list just seems to be endless. But we must not, we must not allow fear to dominate us. Edmund Burke wrote, he said, no passion so effectually robs the mind of its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. When fear dominates us, we can't do what we need to do. 
God calls us to courageously stand for what is right and true. And today, even today, we are witnessing courageous faith. Every four minutes, a believer somewhere in the world dies for his or her faith. Just recently, it was 30 Ethiopian Christians martyred and 12 Christian migrants who were forced overboard to their deaths in the Mediterranean for praying to God. And slightly before that, it was 21 Coptic Christians in Egypt beheaded just because they are followers of Jesus Christ. These are fearful times. And can, can I add this too? That when anyone tries to compare the actions of ISIS to the crusades of history, it is an unfair historical comparison. It's not even comparing apples to oranges. It's comparing apples to rutabagas or kumquats or something like that. There's, there, there's no relationship to it. So when people say, well, you know, Christians, don't buy into it. Know your history. It's not the same, and it never will be the same. Because of the spiritual climate of our world, I'm concerned about some of our international students who find Christ here and are returning to homelands where they may be held to harsher standards for their faith than here. But remember, it is not fear that drives us, but great faith in Him who is the resurrection and the life. So what can we do here? What can we do? Well, first of all, pray for those whose lives are on the line that they may remain faithful and strong in the face of death. Pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. And here's the, here's the second thing. This is, this is a heart of prayer. Pray for those who oppose the faith. Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If Jesus could pray that from the cross, then who am I to refuse to pray for those who oppose him? Because those who oppose him still desperately need him as well. It's, it's, it's really hard to do, but it is what God has asked us to do, to pray for our enemies. I I kind of feel, and I suspect many of you do, uh, like the man who was walking out of worship services one Sunday. He was on his way back to his car, and they'd been talking about this very subject. And he turned to his wife, and he said, how can I love my enemies when I don't even like my friends? <laughs> if you've ever felt that way, then you know how hard a prayer this is. But everybody, everybody needs Jesus Here's something else we need to do. Study the Word so that you know what you believe and why you believe it. Grow in your knowledge. Get involved in a life group. Teach your family well. I believe that my grandchildren's generation will face far more of a challenge to their faith than what I have faced or will face in my lifetime, which is why I so desperately want this body of believers to be strong and healthy for those generations that are yet ahead so that they will be able to stand the test of their faith as time goes on. We need to stand for His truth. Do not shrink from the truth of God and His Word. Speak it boldly, but speak it winsomely and lovingly. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus reminds us to speak the truth in love. Yes, in love, but speak the truth. And then make a difference for as long as God gives you breath. Serving is not without cost. Faith is not without cost, but Peter and John considered it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Will we? 
In Ronald Reagan's first inaugural address, he referenced the simple white grave markers in Arlington Cemetery and then told the story of one. He said, under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Trepto, who left his job in a small town barbershop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We are told that on his body was found his diary. On the flyleaf under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words, America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully, I will do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended upon me alone. That's the kind of spirit that makes for infectious courage. Can I editorialize his words? The church, the church must win this war. Therefore, we will work, we will save, we will sacrifice, we will endure, we will fight cheerfully, we will do our utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle of the faith depends on us alone. That was the courage of the first century church. That is the courage to which God calls us as well. Will you rise to the challenge?